everyone, and welcome to National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And today on the pod, we have a semi-serious discussion, would you say, Em? Oh, yeah, for sure. But I think we've been building to this for a while. Yeah, it's... It's been a long time coming. We are going to be discussing the concepts of feminism and intersectionality in both National Treasure, the films, and National Treasure, Edge of History, the series. We are going to examine how women are portrayed and treated in these pieces of media. We're going to examine how that portrayal has changed from film to show. Uh, But we're also going to take a look at some of these intersectionality factors and track those changes as well. I think this is going to shape up to be a really interesting conversation that feels very National Treasure Hunt, you know? Yeah, I think 100% 100 in agreement. Um, But, Aubrey, we have to start somewhere else. As always, right? Yes. Deep, deep in the depths of the Parkington Lane pit, perhaps. So, for any newcomers to the pod, our Screams from Parkington Lane segment is our weekly, bi-weekly, periodic acknowledgement about how national treasure has seeped into every nook and cranny of our daily lives. Effectively, we, like Shaw, have fallen into the deep pits beneath Parkington Lane, But we, unlike Shaw, have lived to tell the tale. So, Emily, do you have a scream to share this week? I hope it's a good one because you have some competition. I have a really good one this week. Um, I do have a scream, and I want to do kind of like a real-time thing. So um, I'm actually sending you a picture um, right now. We'll see what your response to it is. Oh, my gosh. I'm, like, nervous. I've received the picture. Oh my gosh, it's a National Treasure Hunt sticker on a water bottle? Yeah. Whose water bottle? So this uh, picture was sent to me by um, my friend Erica, who is currently a professor at Ursinus College, and I asked her whose water bottle it was. And she shared with me that it was Molly O'Rourke Friel's water bottle, who um is an assistant professor of philosophy and was one of the uh professors that attended the common event discussion that we had at Ursinus and came up and talked to us about how much she loved our work and what we were doing after the fact oh my gosh I love that that's a pretty good scream that reminds me of when that sticker popped up in the ice cream shop in in Arlington mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was it not the best feeling when you got that picture Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> All right, but I, I apparently have competition, so what's your scream? You do. This is like one of those once-in-a-lifetime screams that I guess are just becoming more common in our lives, so maybe not quite once-in-a-lifetime for us anymore. Um, anyone who follows me personally on social media knows that I recently went on a work trip to Central Europe. I visited multiple countries, the last of which was Austria. And a couple days before I get there, I get an email from a contact, you know, a a colleague in country saying like, hey, I know you're probably exhausted, but there's like this really big, like kind of famous Viennese ball happening the Saturday that you arrive. Would you like want to go? And let me just say, for the record, every 
fiber of my being was like, you will hate doing this because you're going to be so tired. But then my brain was like, but when could you do it again? So naturally, I decided to go to this Viennese ball. It's called the Juristen Ball. Um, it is held at the Hofburg Palace. So this is like one of the, like the central Habsburg Palace in the middle of Vienna. Um, yeah, that alone is kind of national treasury enough. But the story doesn't stop there, y'all. I am at this ball and I'm talking to some like local Viennese people. And as it so often does, the fact that national treasure hunt exists gets brought up in this conversation. It happens all the time. I don't know. Um, and one of the local people I was talking to said, oh, you you know that Nicolas Cage attended Juristen Ball in 2019, right? What? And I literally, was, I, I, I was like, I, I lost it. I was like, wait, what? Like, he attended this specific, there are hundreds of Viennese balls. He attended this specific one at this, Only four years ago. At this exact palace like he was probably standing literally where i am right now what if that isn't like a sign from the universe i do not know what is and that fact alone made all of the exhaustion and the cost of the ball very much worth it yeah i mean that's yeah that beats mine (laughs) No, they're both, this is a good scream week, and it looks, sounds like we have two pictures to share on our social media this week, your photo and a picture from the ball, so y'all have, do. That, have that to look forward to. Yes, so uh, to see those pictures, <laughs> go ahead and find us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. Um, you can also find a bunch of information about basically everything we do on our website, nthuntpodcast.com, and Please, if you haven't already, go ahead and order our book, National Treasure Hunt, One Step Short of Crazy, at TuckerDSPress.com. Alrighty, shall we outline today's episode? I think we shall. So, what we're going to do is we're going to start with some basic definitions, just to get make sure everybody's on the same page. Um, we're then going to talk about how we see the themes of feminism and intersectionality, in the National Treasure films, followed by the National Treasure series. Um, We're then going to kind of talk about a a few other kind of miscellaneous things that didn't really fit (laughs) neatly into one of these categories, but I wanted to make sure that we covered. Um, And then we're going to do a little wrap up at the end of our overall assessments of kind of how we feel about the way that these themes were represented in both the movies and the series itself. That sounds great. I think, like I said, this is going to be a really interesting discussion and hopefully thought-provoking enough that some folks share their thoughts with us after listening to this episode, both on social media and even on our Discord channel. So start collecting your thoughts, y'all. Yes, please do start collecting your thoughts. Okay, so uh, definitions. So I... These are Merriam-Webster definitions. So um, the definition of feminism is the belief in and advocacy of the political, economic, and social equality of the sexes expressed, especially through organized activity on behalf of women's rights and interests. 
Now, that being said, um, we don't necessarily see organized activity um, that has to do with feminism in this franchise, but we're going to be talking about the the concept of feminism and how it appears in uh, the National Treasure franchise. Yeah, I think a lot of this is going to manifest as how women are perceived, portrayed, and treated in in the franchise, especially compared to their male counterparts. Um, so it's almost like we can perhaps identify opportunities for feminism or feminist action from these these stories for sure um and then intersectionality um merriam webster defines as the complex cumulative way in which the effects of multiple forms of discrimination such as racism sexism and classism combine overlap or intersect uh, especially in the experiences of marginalized individuals or group. And Aubrey, I know this is something that you actually work with a lot in your day job. Yeah, so when I think of intersectionality, I like to think of examples and um, basically different identity factors that all contribute to one's lived experience. Um, and they can compound with one another to change one's experience of different situations in the world. So examples of these identity factors include, like you said, race or even ethnicity, um, as well as things like disability status, indigenous status, LGBTQIA plus status, um, let's see, living in poverty, living in rural versus urban areas, um, those are all the ones that are coming to mind immediately, but that is not exclusive either. Like you can think of this very, very broadly. And I think it is important to note that gender is also an important component of intersectionality. And so it's it's actually pretty easy to see intersections between feminism and intersectionality itself. Um, we're going to explore that a little bit in this episode, I think, but it is important to recognize these, I think, also as separate phenomena. So we'll we'll do a little bit of both. I really do hope this will be kind of a fluid conversation so we don't necessarily have to call out specifically the feminism components and specifically the interse intersectionality components. So let's just kind of uh, merge it together and see, see where we get. Does that sound good? That sounds great. So, Aubrey, like I said, we're going to start by talking about the National Treasure films. Um, but before we kind of dive into some of the uh, characters in in the films, um, I was wondering if you might be able to kind of give us some of your uh, thoughts on some overarching uh, factors in these films. Yeah, I think this conversation can be very surface level or it can get deep. And in a way, I want to tackle both, right? So the overarching, most obvious sense that I think most people will be able to agree with when it comes to their impression of the National Treasure films is that we are dealing with a predominantly white male cast. Um, we have discussed previously, specifically in episode 35, um, I think that's Hunt for Clichés, this concept of the Smurfette principle, so the idea that you have 
predominantly men and sort of like one token woman. Her role is to be ogled at or to kind of chastise the men in her life. Um, and because of a deeper understanding of these movies, we really don't think that National Treasure subscribes to the Smurfette principle. But without that deeper look, just looking at the cast, right, a cast list alone, on the surface, it could certainly look like the Smurfette principle is applying here, you know? Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. And yeah, please check back if you're listening to that conversation that we had in episode 35, because it was a really interesting one. Um, But so I think that kind of is a brief overview of like, some components of the patriarchy, um, mm-hmm. right, that we we see in these movies. But I know intersectionality is a factor that we haven't really talked about on the podcast yeah. in the context of these films. Totally. You know, I think one of the big factors here that is actually quite important to the storyline in the National Treasure movies is that the characters are all well-educated and pretty well-off financially, right? Like, even Ian, who is the villain, is portrayed as pretty smart. Like, he is trying to solve the clues, and he does solve most of the clues just slower than Ben. So even our villain is like fairly well-educated. We know that Ben is, right? We have his educational pedigree to reference. We know that Abigail is, she's a PhD, right? And, And high up in her field. Even Riley, I mean, he's a tech genius. And then from a financial perspective, yes, we have Ian financing the treasure hunt, but we never get the impression that Ben is like impoverished, right? Or any of his colleagues. Plus, we see his father's home. He has a beautiful home. We even see Ben's apartment, which is spacious and, you know, he has the financial means to set up this whole particulate filtration system in his in his apartment. Like, well-educated and well-off. You really get the impression almost that the biggest instability in the principal character's lives is the fact that Ben comes from divorced parents. Mm, Very true. I never thought about that. Yeah. So then that's, we're getting a little bit deeper now, right? It's kind of going from the surface level to the deep. And to go one step further, maybe one step deeper into Parkington Lane Pit, if you will, um, I kind of wanted to ask, do we think that this portrayal is a reflection of the social norms and what was typical in Hollywood and and um, casting and whatnot at the time of filming, or even just the stories portrayed by Hollywood at the time of filming, this idea of white, male, well-off, etc.? Maybe in part, but I actually have a theory that it's more than that. Okay. I think there might also be an element of story strategy here. What I mean by this is, you know, we always talk about on National Treasure Hunt that the creative team makes the impossible as possible as possible, right, (laughs) in this movie because it's such an incredible premise that you need to make the characters as capable as they can be of accomplishing this outlandish task, so, is having a financially well-off, well-educated team of treasure hunters a strategic element here to ensure the heist seems possible in a the confines of a two-hour movie? Wow. 
Okay. So I, I really like that point. And I would completely agree with you that I think the idea of them being well off and well educated um, definitely was probably a strategic decision mm -hmm. in that sense. I will say I think the fact that the majority of the characters are well, basically all of the characters are white mm -hmm. and the majority of them are male. I believe that is a representation of what it was like in Hollywood during the time that these movies were, were filmed. So I think we definitely have both yeah. of these things going on, which I only point out because that will become something that's slightly different uh, when we get to talking about National Treasure Edge of History. I'm actually going to take it one step further even. Not only is the whole white male element of it probably indicative of the time, but this could also be a reflection of some of the inspiration used to create the movie, right? We know that Charles Seegers was inspired by wanting another Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm. And so if they're going to create these subtle nods or parallels to a story like that, your main character is a white guy right? He has this token female, True. right? Like things like that um, could also have been a part of it. Does that make it a, a good idea? I, I don't think we're ready to say that. But it's interesting to think of all of these elements coming together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's, thank you, Aubrey. That was, that's a really, <laughs> that's a really nice overview. I think that that gives us a lot of kind of fodder, hopefully, for the continuation of this conversation as we dive into kind of the individual characters um, sure. a little so bit. I imagine we're going to be focusing a lot on the, the female characters. Definitely a national treasure. We will be focusing on the female characters. Um, the male characters you'll notice will come up, but uh, typically in somewhat unfavorable um, ways. And I will uh, make a caveat here and say that I know that we have talked about some of this in the past, um, especially as it refers to how um, the patriarchy can be seen in National Treasure and National Treasure to Book of Secrets. Um, so I don't want to spend too much time kind of laying out, you know, the exact information that we know about all of these, these characters. Um, but I rather want to try and give you kind of the brief or give everyone a brief reminder and then delve into a little a little more depth if we could say so um all right so i guess we're we're gonna start with the obvious is it dr abigail chase it is and you said it right there and you mentioned it earlier she has a doctorate she's an archivist at the national archives so presumably fairly high up on the food chain um and we uh as like i said as i've mentioned before on previous episodes we don't know that much about abigail but what we do know is not super helpful in the context of like pro-feminism things um we we learn a little bit about um some of her previous romantic history in the first film um, there's a whole conversation uh, where when Ben and Abigail arrive at Patrick's house, Patrick assumes that Abigail is, is pregnant with Ben's child. So this eventually, you know, leads to a conversation that Ben and Abigail have um, later on in the film. And, you know, I think, Aubrey, you know, we're, we're, we're hitting some serious stuff here. So I think we have a moment for for some fun. So 
Uh, I've pulled some lines directly from the script. Uh, how would you feel about acting out this this scene with me? Who am I, Ben or Abigail? I was going to let you choose, but I have a feeling that I know who you're going to choose. I don't have a preference. Who do you want to be? You definitely choose Ben. You you choose Abigail. Let's be real. Okay, I'll be Ben. <laughs> okay. Okay. <clears throat> and action. So you show up at your father's door and say you're in trouble, and the first thing he assumes is, I'm pregnant. Is there a question in there? I think there's an interesting story in there. Well, my father thinks I've been a little too cavalier in my personal life. I see. Let me ask you something. Have you ever told someone, not a relative, I love you? Yes. More than one someone? Yes. Oh, well, then my father would say you've been a little too cavalier in your personal life, too. End scene. Thank you. That was that was that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, um I think this is interesting, right? And we can address it from kind of multiple components, but I wanted to take a different angle on it than I've taken previously when discussing this. And so I think that it's possible that we could play this entire conversation and this presumption, right, of Abigail being pregnant and too cavalier with her personal life off as basically it's more Patrick's issue than it is Ben's, right? Patrick seems to be the one that has the issue with Ben specifically, and then he's projecting that on to Abigail. Now, likely this is due to the fact that some of Patrick's standards are set in a specific way because the patriarchy is rooted in history, and to be quite frank, he's an older gentleman um, right. at, the, at the time of the film. I, I fully agree. I think this is entirely a Patrick thing. Um, I don't think this conversation or this even episode is about assigning blame to characters either, but it is worth recognizing the different perspectives that characters come from. And I completely agree with your assessment of Patrick here. I will say that the flippant pregnancy comment has always bugged me mm -hmm. um, personally. And I know that it was written to be funny. Right. And then it makes you ask yourself, what does that say about viewing audiences in 2004 that this writing team decided, hmm, we want a funny line here. What is the line that will make the audience maybe laugh and that this is what they came up with? Right. And I, I do have to say that I think, it, you know, it, it's interesting because I, I completely agree with what you're saying. I will note, though, that it does lead to the conversation that we, you know, so greatly or so <laughs> wonderfully just acted out. Um, and I think that the point of that conversation was to kind of begin the development of the romance between Ben and Abigail. Um, so I think that it probably served a dual purpose in a way. But I do think that I'm probably just trying to explain it away slash give a little more credit to like the quote unquote joke um, itself in trying to see it from a more positive light. There are obviously there are other ways that we could have come a come about this yeah, conversation exactly. without needing the the pregnancy comment thrown in there. 
Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Okay, awesome. So uh, the other kind of main uh, thing that I have that's that's a little newer, I, I don't think I've talked about this before. Um, we know in the second film um, that Abigail is dating Connor, right? And she's dating Connor in the beginning of the film and then kind of a little bit in the middle of the film. Um, but this is made to seem like a really big deal. Um, and personally... And I would assume you're the same, Aubrey. I literally have no issue with her dating Connor in the second film, aside from the fact that, one, it it's not Ben, and I want her to be with Ben. <laughs> um, and the fact that I feel like it's treated as some kind of disservice that she is doing to Ben by essentially, like, moving on with Connor so quickly. We don't really get a sense of the exact timeline of like when the breakup happened and when she started dating Connor, but I feel like we're led to believe, or at least I have always interpreted it as it was relatively a relatively recent breakup. I think that's a fair assumption just because um of the comments that Patrick makes about all of Ben's boxes being in his house and how Ben is staying with his dad as opposed to like for example having his own apartment again true yes exactly and so like one that gives me this kind of thought that maybe Ben is like working to get Abigail back the whole time which is why maybe he also hasn't gotten his own apartment but two I don't know if you felt this way, but I have always gotten the sense that the movie, which I re- I realize is weird to say, or the writers wanted us to feel as though Abigail was moving on too quickly hmm. from Ben. Is is this my own personal bias talking? It might be. And I'd love to explore that more because um, I personally never felt that way. Actually, almost on the contrary, And this could be because of myself living in the Washington, D.C. area, but I almost felt like we were supposed to think that Abigail was kind of leveling up because she went from this, like, informal treasure hunter to a White House staffer. Like, ooh, like, big deal, you know, person in in the White House. You know what I mean? Hmm. Yeah, Um, that's very true. It's interesting, though, because his character and... Obviously, this is probably a bias that we both hold, too, because we see him as Phil Dunphy from Modern Family. But, like, his character is not portrayed as, like, the the most with it, like, the smartest person mm-hmm. in the room. Um, but he can get them into the Oval Office. Like, Ben can't do that. True. I mean, Ben That's could probably true. figure it out because he's done crazier heists, but, like fundamentally, Ben can't do that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's extremely true. Um, but so I guess, you know, this whole this whole concept of like wondering if this is my bias, obviously, it's because I, I'm interested in the romance, right? I want Ben and Abigail to be together. But it also gives me this kind of thought of, are we supposed to be seeing the events of the film to some extent? through Ben's eyes obviously not directly right it's not that Arthur episode where he wakes up and doesn't have his glasses on and has to put them on right it's not it's not from Ben's perspective purely but I feel like we're at least supposed to be siding with Ben because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day you know we we have three 
protagonists, but like Ben is the main one. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, to some extent, we do know that Riley is supposed to be the eyes and ears of the audience. Mm-hmm. And if Riley's going to take a side, it's going to be Ben's. So there's that as well. That's true. Honestly, Aubrey, thank you for bringing that up because that leads directly into uh, the next point that I wanted to kind of pull out here, um, which we definitely have talked about before, but I feel like it, once again, this kind of is one of those uh, quote unquote jokes that you were referring to, like with the pregnancy thing that we personally have always found just a little unsavory. Um, Riley, um, when Ben was, uh, had snuck into the gala, um, in the first National Treasure film, Riley asks Ben via the little intercom system they have in their ears, um, if the quote, hot girl was there, and then he proceeds to ask how she looked. Uh, Yeah, this was one of those, and this was one of those moments where you are seeing everything through Ben's perspective and you hear like the little voice coming in his ear of Riley and it is supposed to be funny. And that has a part, I mean, I think by and large National Treasure has aged fairly well. This is not an example of that. Oh, not not at all. And honestly, and this is something that I'm 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 willing to admit, um, because I, I feel comfortable with kind of the audience that that we have here, and I feel like we've been doing this for long enough. This is one of those things that when I initially saw the movie, I definitely thought was like humorous. Mm -hmm. I I thought it was a funny line. And now every time I watch it, I'm like, I cringe. I cringe. And I think that's because I've become more educated about these kinds of issues as I've grown up and as society has begun to change and we're going to continue to see those ideas of societal norms Mm -hmm. changing uh, as we get further in our discussion and start talking about edge of history a little later as well so it's not just this hot girl and how she looked component that i want to point out though but there was also a moment as part of the same heist scene where riley calls abigail the mean declaration lady Mm-hmm. which also has important undertones because between the whole appearance thing and the personality thing you have Riley who is admittedly not the primary character mm-hmm. um he is doing the common thing of like validating or assessing the value of a woman based on her appearance and we're also getting a critique of her personality that from what we have seen is not justified is she mean no she's doing her job right because you couldn't steamroll her into letting you see the declaration because you wanted to you now have you know she now has this like mean label attached to her which i think is something that is not just prevalent in media and and fictional film and television but that's certainly still common today, like in the workplace and in real life. Oh, for sure. And I think we have another point coming up in a minute or two where I'm going to let you or I'm going to I'm going to let you loose uh, and <laughs> let you kind of expand on that uh, never a little do more. That. It's, a, it's never a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, two other things that I, I noticed about um, kind of Abigail in these films 
Um, the idea that in National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets, um, when they are in Buckingham Palace, uh, Ben initially, they're in the little like jail cell thing, and Ben is initially refusing to let Abigail basically go to the Queen's study with him um because he literally said and i i pulled this from the script that it was too dangerous yeah so i have a response here but i do want to come back to your overarching point we have discussed before on the pod how there are definitely different interpretations to this scene i think you still think that ben meant it he meant it was too dangerous i strongly believe that he didn't mean it because it just like genuinely was not possible for him to leave her there and still get away with the heist um so i think it was more of a flippant comment so i don't think Mm. he meant this at all that being said even if my interpretation is correct like the fact that his joke was oh it's too dangerous for you it's another example of the humorous aspect having a certain undertone you are you are a woman and it is too dangerous for you you know Mm -hmm. And then one more thing in Buckingham Palace, this honestly has always annoyed me, and I don't know how I haven't brought it up before, but um, when Ben and Abigail are having their very bombastic fight Mm -hmm. um, to cause a distraction, the security guard keeps directly speaking, one, to Ben, right, not to Abigail, even though Ben is, uh, even though Abigail is part of this conversation, and he is continue. The security guard is continually asking Ben to take his misses outside. He literally says like "you and the misses" or like "please take the misses outside" like numerous times in the script for that scene. I literally never thought of this before. This is such a great point. Oh yay! I never I mean, thought like, of not that yay before. for feminism, but wow. Sorry, now I need to think about this for a second. (laughs) You are so right. I'm trying to think if there's any story reason why that decision would have been made. And the only one I can think of is the fact that Ben is the one that's actually on the banister. So he's causing more of the disturbance. But that that only potentially explains why he's addressing Ben specifically. The whole take your misses outside. Yeah. Like, for all the guard knows... Ben is antagonizing Abigail and maybe she should should she be forced to leave as well? I don't know. The guard right. doesn't know anything about their relationship either. He right, doesn't so know that presuming. they Yeah, he doesn't know that they know each other necessarily or that they quote unquote came together even though they didn't, you know what I mean? Well, um, I mean they they are some of the stuff they're saying I I think would give him some hints that they true. are involved or were involved, but yeah, I agree. Like nowadays we would be thinking of this possibly hopefully in the context of like is there something we need to be doing to kind of step in and protect this woman Mm -hmm. rather than sending her outside with this man who is antagonizing her like at least that would hopefully be a thought that would occur excellent excellent point yeah cool well thank you for talking about abigail with me um there are very few other women to talk about in these movies so i'm guessing the next one is dr emily appleton or dr helen mirren as we like to call her but yes emily appleton yeah um so (laughs) honestly i'm surprised you knew her last name on this little spreadsheet here i looked it up oh my god (laughs) um 
we know from Edge of History, though, that her last name is now Gates again. It's true. Um, so anyway, uh, which changing last names, a whole different thing, but mm. we're not going to go into that. <laughs> um, so kudos to her for taking back her original last name or maybe never changing it in the first place uh, in National Treasure Book of Secrets. Um, so she also has her doctorate. She is a professor and actually the chair of the linguistics department at the University of Maryland. Um so a couple things here um that I wanted to uh bring up. Emily, you know, claims during some heated heated moments uh, in the film that she and Patrick uh got divorced because one of them had to quote unquote grow up and stay home to take care of Ben. Um in this case I'm assuming the stay home component of this means no more treasure hunting rather than like quitting a job and being becoming a stay-at-home parent um obviously we don't necessarily know that that's the case but because the treasure hunting is the big perceived problem in their relationship i feel like that would make the most sense for sure and there's definitely an implication at least patrick says in one of these arguments that she also liked treasure hunting with him at one point. And so even, I think it's important to to realize here that this is a very obvious parallel with traditional gender roles and responsibilities in the home mm-hmm. where the mother or whoever is taking on a, a traditional mother role as it's considered is um, the one to predominantly care for the kids. At what cost? It doesn't matter, right? right? A lot of times we think about it as you as you noted in a formal job. But if we consider it treasure hunting in this case, it's the woman giving up a hobby or something that brings her joy outside of her formal responsibilities. And I would argue that that is equally problematic. Definitely. And I I also would like to point out the concept of like grow up here, because I think it's really interesting in a lot of situations. um, I think we're conditioned or at least have been in the past as women to see men as at some point kind of making that transition from like bachelor living to being more of a grown-up and having you know a job a steady income being the one that provides for the family right like that's how the patriarchy would like us to see this situation but like also there's this concept of sometimes men never grow up and i'm not saying that either one of these is is correct there's obviously a lot more nuance to these things that we're not going to get into right now but the idea that emily here is saying like oh basically patrick never grew up yeah um and is putting him she is basically like in that in a sense with her words becoming like a motherly figure um by talking about like him growing up and obviously that didn't occur because she divorced him right <laughs> But it's interesting. I would actually say that there's an element of her talking down to him in that regard. Mm. Um, And I think it's particularly interesting because we obviously didn't know Patrick or Patrick and Emily during their relationship. What we know is 
post their relationship. And it's funny because Patrick has, in some ways, grown up to an extreme, right? He's completely nixed the treasure hunting out of his life, at least up until the first movie. Um, And he did, right? He actually makes the comment about like steady job, you know, income, health insurance, like that kind of that kind of stuff. Now, what I do think is interesting here is I think part of the element of feminism that you illuminated with your definition earlier, Emily, is the idea of equality. And so we want everyone to be able to live their life to the fullest, regardless of their sex or their gender identity. One of those things is being able to live out your passions in and outside of work. And if you want a family, being able to incorporate that in as well, like all of the above, mix and match your life story the way you want it to be. What I find interesting here, not to keep ragging on Patrick as a character, but what's interesting is he was criticized by his ex-wife, presumably during their relationship, for his inability to grow up and, and you know be an adult. And then when we meet him in 2004 in National Treasure, he's criticizing his adult son the same way he was criticized by his ex-wife. And I find that really interesting. I don't know if that's a reflection of him learning and growing and actually agreeing with Emily over time, or if it's a little bit of a a jealousy creeping in Mm. um, because he sees his son doing the thing that he always wanted to do, but was convinced that he couldn't or shouldn't. Okay. Or something else. But I think there's like, we could probably spend a whole episode if we wanted to dissecting Patrick I don't think we're going to but we definitely could oh for sure and and while you're saying you know you don't want to rag on Patrick too much uh kind of you know in in that vein the way that Patrick talks about Emily in general when he's talking to Ben or even to Emily is not great um he's kind of talking about her as if she's like unreasonable um but i would like to point out that as you mentioned emily also replies to him in the same manner um so i feel like this is like there might not be quite as much patriarchy in i mean the the patriarchy is definitely still there but at least in terms of like both sides you know getting hits in Mm -hmm. it it doesn't make it better but on the surface level it you know, makes it seem like we're picking on Patrick a little less. Yeah, (laughs) I believe that. I actually think that in general, the Emily character, like the concept of the Emily character in Book of Secrets is a pretty strong example of feminism and general anti-patriarchy just because she is really revered and respected for her skills and qualifications, right? Like people are going to her as the preeminent expert in this field and she is never questioned. It's You never get the sense that someone is questioning her abilities or her profession or her credentials because of her gender, which I think is a stark contrast to what you see in academia in real life a lot of the time. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, she at least by her students seems to be characterized as uh unreasonable or like impossible to work with uh or like you get the impression that she's too 
quote-unquote too academically picky Mm -hmm. um with her like standards and it makes me wonder kind of to your point if this was specific to her being a female in academia um or like yeah and I have examples that could go either way in real life but Aubrey this is where I kind of want to let you let you loose here because I know that you can share some things yeah I'll keep this as concise as possible I don't think that it was intentional on the part of the creators in any way shape or form to portray her as an unreasonable academic because she's a woman I think that adding the lens of what academia looks like for women colors this really cringily (laughs) especially because the student we see storming out of her office is a young woman so I think that adds another element to it. Ultimately, I'll say that there are many studies out there, quantitative with qualitative examples or anecdotes, that show women professors tend to be rated more poorly overall than male professors. And, you know, you might say, oh, well, maybe they just, like, weren't as good at teaching. Well, first, I would ask you, why do you think that? But secondly... When the researchers actually dive into the why of this, like into the anecdotes and and the the surveys and whatnot, there is a trend that basically results in students wanting women professors to have more of a mothering or empathetic vibe to them. And so if they're not, if they are normal human beings with expectations and standards, even the same expectations and standards that male professors would have, then these women professors are disliked and consequently punished in some way for it. That punishment comes in this form of like negative student reviews. And in many universities, student reviews might determine whether or not you get promoted or whether or not your contract is renewed or, you know, different benefits like that. Um, I've heard similar anecdotally like stories when women are chairs of departments where, you know, A chair of a department is supposed to make a lot of decisions, and sometimes those decisions are tough, and sometimes those decisions aren't liked by all of the professors in that department, but it is taken very differently if a woman makes those decisions than if a man does. You know, I think, again, anecdotally, I've heard when the man makes that decision, it was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, he had to make a tough decision. Good for him for being able to make that decision. And if a woman makes that decision, it's, oh, my God, she's screwing over everyone in the department. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for sharing uh, all that. I I agree with that. I think that's really interesting. And I think as someone who uh, is intending to go into uh, more in more more into academia uh, as a woman, it is definitely giving me uh, some stuff to think about. So to color this in the context of this scene that we see Emily actually being a professor. I think it's particularly telling that it's a female student running out of the room screaming, I hate her because she's too tough and she's too demanding and what have you. Um, that, in retrospect, is a little icky. It is a little icky. It is. Um, and now to end our discussion of National Treasure, the movies, on an icky note. But I think it's about time that we jumped into the series. 
Yeah, season one, at least, of National Treasure Edge of History. <laughs> so, Aubrey, once again, um, you did a great job with the last one. So would you be able to provide us some kind of overarching views of some of this stuff? Yeah, for sure. So I think, again, we're going to start more surface level and dive in a little deeper as we go. I think if I were to ask any one of our listeners, like, what is the biggest difference between the characters in the movies and the the show? Two things will come up immediately. Number one, main character is a woman. Number two, we have an immediate shift to younger characters. Now, I in terms of like intersectionality and why this choice was made, I do not think this choice was made as an explicit effort to like really explore youth experiences and things like that, which is more of an intersectional perspective. Mm-hmm. I do think that age decision was really to reach a targeted audience of yeah. younger viewers, right? Yeah. And also recognizing the viewing platform, Disney Plus. This is not this is not going to theaters where you have a in theory a broader range of viewership. This is on Disney Plus. It does have some orientation towards young viewers. Um another overarching point is of course that the cast is far more ethnically diverse reflecting different backgrounds and experiences that we can explore more momentarily, but it is a a big departure. Mm -hmm. And I'll also note, because we harped on this point from the opposite perspective for the movies, in the show, we do see a good range of financial situations here as well. And so you could ask yourself what those lived experiences in different financial situations might mean for how the character's experience all of the events that are happening in the show right this financial situation spectrum ranges from Jess literally being in debt from her mother's medical bills to Ethan the law student who has a super nice car and a super nice apartment that literally people on Twitter are like I just want to know how Ethan affords that apartment that's literally (laughs) a recurring theme that I have seen um now I will say and we can explore this a little bit later and we will One of the things that I didn't realize until I was prepping this episode, Emily, and I wonder if you noticed it, of the four, like, original friends who have been friends forever, so that's Jess, Tasha, Ethan, and Oren, the men, the two men in that that group, are depicted as significantly better off financially than the women. So we're talking Ethan and Oren versus... Jess and Tasha. We'll talk more about how that's depicted later, but I was wondering if there's like any significance to that or if that's just a really unfortunate coincidence. Ooh. I'm going to think sus- about that as we go through. Like, I suspect the latter because I don't think there's ill intent on the part of the creators here. Unless, unless we see the women depicted in this way because it gives them another element of adversity that they have to overcome, therefore making their success later on, and even their intelligence, their perceived and portrayed intelligence, come off as even more impressive. Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm going to be thinking about that. Okay. Well, we'll get back to it at the end of this section. Yeah. 
Okay, so um, let's start with our female characters. We've already done episodes where we've kind of analyzed these characters, so we're not going to go into it too much. Um, but I think one of the the major things that we uh, notice slash need to talk about with Jess is that she's Latina. She is, you know, uh, Mexican-American. Um, and this is very different than what we see in the National Treasure films. Um, not only was the cast in the National Treasure films completely white, um, but uh, obviously the lead, Ben, Mm -hmm. uh, was white as well. And so having a non-white lead uh, to this television show is, I think, really nice. And I think it's, it's significant from a very particular perspective. We saw a lot of criticism, I would say unwarranted criticism online, where it seemed like people were asserting that this decision was just made for a like for a box checking exercise standpoint but it goes so much deeper than that inherently if you buy into our whole conversation from the first half of this episode where we talked about seeing things through the eyes of Ben as the main character immediately by putting Jess in the main character role and therefore we're now seeing things through her eyes you're immediately getting things through a different lived experience like imagine a 22 year old Ben 22 year old white Ben literally playing the role of Jess things would be super different and if you, if I, I think it's hard to argue with that assertion and that alone should explain the importance of the intersectionality in the show. For sure. Um, I mean, and then, you know, you're talking about seeing things through, or, you know, if Ben had played this role, right, things would have been super different. I mean, one of the things that would have been super different that was kind of a big deal in the series was, um, you know, Jess's DACA status. Yes, definitely. Now, this was really significant also. I want to note in that this was the one of the first, if not the first, portrayals of like a main character having DACA on a TV show. Um, certainly the first time it happened in this franchise, but it was actually bigger than that from a television like history perspective. Um, and so, yeah, that's one of the, one of the lived experiences that you see portrayed through Jess's eyes and her, and, and the, the fears that she has, um, probably the jobs that she has access to, how that contributes to her financial situation, et cetera, throughout this show. Right. And I mean, a perfect example of this is, you know, that her friends at times, seem or she at least views them as being possibly overprotective i i feel like maybe they were an appropriate level of protective but that's once again as a white woman not for me to say um they were protective regarding her daca status um we also have to keep in mind that in order to continue in this protection of her which ethan was doing kind of from a romantic interest as well uh, he did tell Liam about Jess's DACA status without her permission. And that became like a minor issue that was raised um, in the series. So 
I mean, not only do we have to think about in terms of her, you know, possibly being able to get a job, right? I mean, we know she wants to be in the FBI, and she needs to be an American citizen in order to be in the FBI. So, I mean, her dream career is literally currently unattainable mm-hmm. until she can become a, an American citizen. And then also we're seeing this affect the way that not only just people interact with her, but also like her close friends. And I, I think we we want to see that from a positive light. Because, you know, we want to think like, well, friends being protective of you is always a good thing. But it's a different kind of burden than I feel are those that like you and I, Aubrey, you know, would experience. There's also the fact that watching her make decisions herself, given her full history and her citizenship status and things like that, I feel like I recognize when I watch When I watch the episode when she chooses to cross the border into Mexico, knowing that she won't be able to legally come back, I watch that episode and think, I don't understand her decision. Mm -hmm. And then I have to recognize the perspective that I'm coming from and say, I don't understand her decision, but I can't understand her decision because I cannot relate to her position. I think that's an important question to have, though. Like, I suspect I'm not the only person who responded, like, I I don't understand her decision. So that can lead to interesting conversations with people who might be in her position. And you know what? Maybe not everyone in her position would agree with her decision either. Right. But some might. And there's also the element of, of family and her family history that became very important and her culture that might have drawn her to make that decision that you and I cannot and will never understand. Um, Yeah, and I think, Aubrey, what I want to say here is I think, you know, this maybe in this moment is kind of a calling to us uh, to try to see if we can find some fans of the series that maybe aren't in this exact situation, but are at least... You think think some of them are looking for a Pan-American treasure? (laughs) Are closer to uh jess's situation than you and i as white you know women are and maybe having some of these kinds of conversations and you know trying to understand what you know others perspectives maybe relatedly um i've long wondered whether the creators of the show spoke with people of um latin american descent people who are who do have daca status and and kind of ask the question of how would you have responded in these myriad scenarios um i don't know if they did i would i would hope that they did because to be honest i have seen i have seen some tweets as well kind of asking the same question like i would feel a little bit better about this if i knew that you had this kind of advice and this perspective you know right yeah, no, I um, I I definitely I definitely agree with that. Um, I realize we went off on a little bit of a tangent there, but um, I I think something else to note about Jess is um, like the main characters of National Treasure, she's really intelligent, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but she is not college educated, and this was a deliberate choice, mm-hmm. right, on her part that she made because she wanted to take care of her mother when her mother was sick she needed to get a job to pay 
for her mother's medical bills. So it's not like she wasn't qualified to go to college. She, she literally had the option to go to a ton of them, right? But this is super different than what we see of our not only highly intelligent, but highly educated characters yeah. in National Treasure. For sure. Now, remind me, were there any moments in the show that that showed people questioning Jess's authority because she was either... That gives you the impression that they were questioning her because she was either a woman or young or not college educated? Yeah, so um, I know I'm the quote person. I, <laughs> I don't know a direct quote, but um, there was a scene early on in the series where... Um, her boss at the storage unit place where she worked was definitely uh, quite rude to her. This was specifically when she was trying to solve the I am a ghost thing that Sadusky had left. And he kind of made some comments about like, oh, well, like, aren't you special? And like, just he was kind of like, he didn't really care, and he made that very apparent. And I'm not sure if his rudeness was directly related to her being female or not college-educated or could have just been because she, like, wasn't doing her job and was depicted uh, as being, like, somewhat distracted from from her job during the series. I mean, in retrospect, I think uh, it might have been a little bit of that last thing, but I think it's also tonally and and knowing the scene in which this happens i think it's the boss his insecurities about his inability to to solve this problem Mm -hmm. being projected and then you have to ask he is a middle-aged white man why is he so insecure with this insecurity (laughs) about a young latin american woman being smarter than him yeah so, so yeah, I mean, that was one. Um, the other main one I noticed, once again, I'm sorry, I don't have a quote for you. Um, I would say that Billy definitely talked down to Jess at, at a number of times during the series. But the one that I'm thinking of specifically was um, at the USS Kid. Um, and granted, there was there was a lot that was going on. <laughs> In this scene, um, I assumed that Billy was talking down to Jess in that context because Jess was young and inexperienced. And Billy, like, even says something about Jess being inexperienced and, like, not knowing who she's dealing with. Um, and, and this, once again, could also be because Billy is the bad person and is just, like, being mean and pedantic in general. Um, but it, it could have to do with Jess's age. Oh, I would definitely say some of it has to do with the age and like an assumption that because of her age, she is not a threat, you know, not smart enough for this. She could never trick Billy, etc. Because I do think the way Billy treats Jess, even in situations where Jess is not present changes substantially as the series progresses as the season progresses because i think as soon as billy realizes that jess is very smart i think this happens the moment jess traps billy in the well at the alamo then 
Billy kind of takes on more of a Mitch role, not to cross contaminate our pieces of media <laughs> here, but a Mitch role where like Mitch knew Ben could figure everything out and he was just going to follow him. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what Billy starts doing. True. She kind of like is like, oh, no, you're capable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, thank you for having that conversation with me about Jess. I think now it's probably time to move on to um, our next kind of big female character in Edge of History, uh, Tasha Rivers. Um, Tasha's also young, um, as is Jess, so connecting right from that point. Um, and Tasha is um, African-American. She has kind of a non-traditional job, right? She's like the social media content creator person um and it's made clear very early on that she's very like anti-government and stuff like that um and this is kind of explained later in the season um uh basically that tasha is anti-government most likely because her grandmother was forced into hiding for fighting for civil rights in the 1960s um which definitely you know intersectionality there we're seeing her her race influence you know her her views on things completely understandably right yeah for sure and i think it's interesting to see to examine or at least to acknowledge how this perspective colors her choice of career but it also colors how she is able to comfortably participate in this treasure hunt. We were talking earlier about the ability to be able to pursue your passions Ooh. and your hobbies, whatever those might be, as long as they're not harming other people. And in this case, Tasha is instrumental to a treasure hunt given her technology skills, but there are limitations early on to how she can participate because she does have such a fear and distrust of, in this case, the FBI. I mean, her ex-boyfriend could have literally been killed because she felt that going to the FBI was more dangerous than going and confronting this black market antiquities dealer who is like a domestic terrorist. Yeah. Uh, which I never thought of it in that context before, but that is, wow, that's that's really eye-opening. And I, I, it's a really fascinating to see it from, to hopefully see it from Tasha's perspective in that sense. Yeah, could, um, you, could you imagine preferring to go confront this armed person as being a preferable solution to asking law enforcement for assistance so that you and your friends are safe right and of course another example exactly we can't because we're white like that that's just yeah we, we can't um and i think that that's probably or not probably i know that's something that is an issue you know a current issue as well not necessarily in the context of like a black market antiquities dealer <laughs> but it, in terms of you know taking other other uh routes aside from contacting um law enforcement based on your race unfortunately um so aside from tasha's distrust of the the government and law enforcement 
we, we don't really see a lot of actually like problematic things being said to her or happening to her as a result of her race. Now, I have a whole thing on this. I think this was almost certainly purposeful. Um, I think in a lot of ways, some of the content that is being created in today's, you know, day and age presents us with a quote unquote, like ideal society, especially when there are other very important factors at play in this case, like, you know, the focus of the show was on a treasure hunt. Right. And as much as Tasha is a protagonist, Jess is the main character. So we're likely going to be focusing on, you know, Jess's uh, DACA status and whatnot more than necessarily on Tasha and her race. Um, but I think that this is this this idea of this kind of like ideal society, at least that I feel like maybe was painted in the context of Tasha as a character in this sense is something uh, similar to Aubrey. I know you're familiar with Shit's Creek um, where homophobia literally just wasn't a thing that existed on the show. Like everyone that was interviewed, like Eugene Levy and Dan Levy specifically said this was 100% purposeful that everyone, all the characters simply accepted everyone for who they were and that homophobia just didn't exist in that realm and i'm not i'm not trying to say that racism does not exist in national treasure uh or the franchise itself amongst you know the characters but i think that you know this this is at the end of the day this is also it's a disney property um and so i think there's a little component of that like idealized happy ever after it's, aspect of it's interesting you say that because you know i was gonna ask you if there were any quotes again in terms of in terms of tasha where people questioned her abilities probably more tech abilities because she's a woman or because of her age or because of her race or anything like that and i feel like the answer is no like she is very her skills are very trusted um, a bit like uh, Helen Mirren's care, a bit, a bit like Emily Appleton and her skills being super trusted in the movies. And but but that does make me think like, yeah, from the from her skills perspective, the race element does not become does not come to the forefront. But in this whole anti-government, anti-FBI, right. it does. And so that almost feels weird to me. Like, did they want to make the race not a thing in this show or not yeah it, it definitely feels like kind of a th there's a little tension there i think between those two yeah between and the two ideas it reminds me of actually um without saying too much uh uh captain america um the the new falcon and the winter soldier show that came out um it was a marvel disney plus show but they they kind of tried to address race mm -hmm. in it but didn't do like an amazing job mm -hmm. um and so i feel like 
this also just might be something and not that this is acceptable in any ways or we're making excuses, but it might not be something that Disney is like doing often enough to be good at. That and there could also be the explanation that you gave previously that this is a show about Jess and mm-hmm. Jess's story. Um and therefore this the the race element is not examined as deeply as it could be because of that perspective. That being said, is it problematic that if they had to pick one racial element to do like they boiled down the experience of race in America as only about being relations with government and law enforcement? Right. When that's one piece of a very complex puzzle. Eh. Yeah, definitely, definitely something to think about. So um, I, I just would like to point out to our listeners, if if you know of any examples from the show or when you rewatch the show of uh, Tasha, um, you know, specifically being like talked down to or questioned because of any of these kind of intersectional factors in her life and you want to let us know um specifically me if i miss something um please you know tweet at us uh we'd love to have that conversation um that being said uh we we do need to start kind of you know uh begin to wrap up (laughs) with our last handful of characters so i think next i i want to i want to talk about billy um billy pierce i think you know right off the bat something that struck me as interesting is that there is definitely something to be said for the fact that Billy isn't actually the highest person on the food chain in Crosses Nostrum. Oh yeah. She is literally beholden to a group of old white men. I will say Billy puts the men in their place fairly quickly. Um, that being said, they do, did you notice this? They do accuse her of being emotional and not level-headed because this treasure hunt is too personal for her since her brother died in the treasure hunt. Yep. Mm-hmm. Like, would they have said the same thing to who we now know as Salazar or literally any other man in Cross Nostrum? No. No, absolutely not. Absolutely they would not. Absolutely not. They would not have. Um... And so, yeah, like you mentioned, she's beholden to this this board of old white men. Mm-hmm. But she also, it's made pretty clear from the beginning that there's, like, another player that's, like, even higher up. That is Salazar. And, you know, obviously we don't learn who Salazar is until the end of the first season. But Salazar is, we know now, a man. And I don't know if you noticed this, but was referred to almost exclusively with male pronouns from the beginning of when he was mentioned in the show. So we kind of knew that it was going to be a man, uh, which just to me, I feel like we were very gung ho, not necessarily naively, but we were very gung ho about the fact that it was we were getting a female villain mm-hmm. and that she seemed really powerful. And I mean, she was very powerful and is, I guess she's not dead. Spoilers. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's this hidden element of like, oh, she's actually like the top dog here is actually a man. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to take it one step further again and say, What's the significance to the fact that this, like, head person who changes 
you know, every X number of years when, when the person needs to be replaced, the name for that person is a male name. Ooh. Right? Like, we know now that Crossos Nostrum has been in existence in this fictional world since a very, very long time, right? Like, ancient times when the patriarchy is obviously, you know, far more prevalent even than it is today. Um, and that's when this name was created. So it's not surprising, but it is worth mentioning, I think, that, I don't know, we expected we expected him to be a man and everyone referred to him as a him because the name is Salazar. So everyone expected it to be a man. It actually would have been a huge mic drop moment if it wasn't a man. Yeah, that would have been kind of cool, but that's not what happened. Okay, last female character we're going to talk about from Edge of History, Agent Hannah Betsy Ross. Um, main thing here for me, um, there might be something to be said about the fact, um, that Agent Ross is relocated, which we learned early on in the show. Um, she was, uh, very high up in her class at Quantico. Uh, she, you know, got a really great job opportunity. She was stationed at the FBI headquarters and uh she made a mistake she uh, arrested the wrong person for a crime and then the actual killer that basically remained free killed another person um and she was relocated to baton rouge the fbi office in baton rouge and obviously there's some amount of like story component to this right like let's get her where we are um but I was wondering, would the same thing happen to a man? Um, and I want to say based on today's police system, probably not. Um, that I'm going to leave that at that. Um, but it is made to seem as though Ross got relocated not by choice. Right. Yeah. And this is in stark contrast to someone like Dr. Zeke, a man who made ish a similarly bad mistake um i mean he he killed someone on the operating table and he chose to become a coroner rather than being fired is it possible that he got fired maybe but it's definitely implied that he made the decision himself to become a coroner this is another really interesting point that i had not thought of before yeah, so I just yeah. I I I don't know how to feel about that. I don't know that that was I highly doubt that that was purposeful. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I think it's interesting to consider if it wasn't purposeful what it says about Right. I mean, so much society. of this so much of this I feel like we know the creators of the show. We know mm-hmm. they're not doing anything with ill right. intent. So nothing is ever intentional in a bad way here. But what do our ingrained perceptions of the world cause us to, in this case, write or or produce or create, right? So that's super interesting. But, you know, before we jump out of show mode here, I do want to take a moment to talk a little bit about our key male characters in um, – in Edge of History. So first we have Oren Bradley. Now, uh, Oren's 
history and his family history is never specified. When that happens, we tend to look at the history of the actor. Um, and Antonio Cipriano is Italian-American. So we have potentially that context for Oren. Of course, he is male. In terms of his career, he is an entrepreneur. And I will say it's worth noting this like general characteristic that he has a very high level of confidence, right? He is very sure of himself, seems to not really think anything is out of the question or impossible, and has no hesitation whatsoever, for example, when he's approaching or pitching these wealthy investors at the governor's mansion. Mm. Um which is a level of confidence I can only ever hope to obtain in my life. You're definitely closer than I am. Right. So, like, let's just, we'll leave that there, (laughs) I guess. Yeah. So who's next? Uh, Next, I would just go with his roommate, Ethan. Um, Ethan is an Asian-American man. As we discussed before, he is a law student. So he is, if not currently, en route to a very lucrative career if he wants it. Um, But we do get the impression that he is well off. Again, he has a fancy apartment that many people have commented on, both in the show and online. Um, and he has, I think, a convertible we see him drive, um, if I'm not mistaken. So, nice car, regardless, was the impression that I got. I'm going to move right on into Liam now, because I think of all of the male protagonists in the show, you might have the greatest argument for saying that Liam is maybe not financially stable in the same way that someone like Ethan is. That being said, while he is portrayed as a white male, quote unquote, struggling musician, you never really get the feeling that he's really struggling to pay the bills, right? He is able to make the choice to pursue his dream of being a musician, even if it's not immediately lucrative, even if it is a risk, and you don't see any after effects of that potentially having a negative impact on his ability to live his life. Um, The only time we see him need money is when he's been given this house. So like, here's another instance. Yes, he needs money to pay the taxes on this house, but now he has a house. He has a house with a secret room. Right. Like, seriously. That he can now access. So, that being said, based on this very rudimentary examination of these male characters, I maintain my principal argument that it is only the young women who are truly depicted as struggling to make rent, etc. in this show. At least in the first season of this show. Okay. Very, very well put, Aubrey. So, um, as we kind of went through this episode, I realized that a lot of my miscellaneous uh, material uh, I had kind of used. But uh, I would <laughs> like, th- I do have one miscellaneous comment that I, I think is just interesting, you know, to consider. We've touched on it a little bit, but I want to just bring it up again. Um, in case you haven't noticed, uh, listeners, there is a distinct difference between the jobs and the socioeconomic status even uh, between the characters in the National Treasure films and season one of Edge of History. Um, And this, you know, we've obviously talked about the implications of this, but my question is, is this something that is a result of Disney trying to better reflect the diversity 
of these things in society today? My assumption is yes, because I know Disney is moving and most companies are moving towards more representative um, media. But I think this kind of just brings us back to, you know, to bring us full circle, the idea of what Hollywood was like when National Treasure mm-hmm. was made and what Hollywood is like now when this series is being made. And I think there's some interesting connotations to that. Yeah, it's an evolution of the industry, I think. And I suspect if they made National Treasure 2 Edge of History Secrets books in 20 years from now... Dear Lord... <laughs> 20 years from now it would also look a little bit different it's it's interesting that we can't possibly think of what that difference could be ai oh gosh none of the characters are actual people Mm -hmm. just robots fun there'd be no problem getting Nicolas cage into that series right true (laughs) okay so uh thank you aubrey for this uh really really interesting discussion i know we ran a little long everyone uh but i i feel like it was worth it because i do feel like this is an important uh, you know, set of topics to discuss. So, you know, right before we wrap up, I just want to kind of get what the overall kind of critiques and assessments that we have of this conversation that we had today. Well, I do want to end on a little bit of a deeper note, maybe even an optimistic and forward-looking one. On the on the movies, I do think that given the one note characterization of our cast of characters in National Treasure and National Treasure 2 and some of the descriptions of them we've explored today given that context I'm actually really impressed with how well the movies hold up today because I feel like a lot of movies in that in the situation where it's like all men the women are are treated sometimes not great. They would not be considered to to hold up today. Why do I think that is? I think it's because of all the things we didn't talk about today. We really tried to point out potentially problematic areas, I think, between these two sets of media. And what we didn't point out as much, especially with the film, since we've done it before on the podcast is recognizing how Abigail and Emily, while they are far and few between as as female characters, they are brilliant. They are just as smart as their male counterparts, if not smarter. They are quintessential to the treasure hunt. They are not the Smurfette principle. Mm-hmm. Shifting to the show, I would say that given this analysis, I didn't realize it until we prepped for and had this conversation, but I'd say that there are still actually some major patriarchal undertones in the series. Um, Here's a small point that we didn't talk about, but have you noticed that the male protagonists still outnumber the female ones? Like, Oh my gosh. I mean, just like tiny detail there, but some of the other things we've talked about today as well. But I will say that the intersectional representation, specifically related to race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status, is vastly improved. Now, where could we improve even further? Well, I would say that in a show that centers Indigenous culture so deeply, you would hope 
that Indigenous actors would be hired in at least some roles. So I would Mm -hmm. say that is an area of potential improvement if they were to continue with this, you know, pre-Columbian Native American history track in potential future seasons. Mm. Um, One other point that I wanted to make before hearing if you have any reflections, Em, I found it interesting that the show still hasn't really incorporated an LGBTQIA plus angle. And I say that's interesting specifically because purely anecdotally and observationally with what I've been seeing on TV, I feel like this is one of the first intersectional factors that shows and movies are integrating today. I feel like we're seeing a lot more of that and it's so great because that representation is so important that I almost assumed it was going to be in the show. Yeah, I think I assumed that too. I didn't really read too much into the fact that that wasn't there, but I do agree that there's there's room for improvement on that front. I mean, and again, it's it there's probably nothing nefarious there, just an observation for sure. Yeah. And I think Aubrey what you just said nothing nefarious there. I think that that's kind of what I wanted to reflect on. Um is, you know, you brought up the idea like we we know the creators of this show. Um, we know the lengths that they went to in in creating the show, um, and we know, you know, that they are they are kind and thoughtful humans. Um, but I think the fact that we are able to sit and kind of notice all of these potential issues, right? Um, in the the series um as well as in you know the the movies is i think that just means that there's really something to be said for how deeply rooted uh our biases and the patriarchy are in our lives like it's a it's a continuous process that i think everyone is or should be uh, working to break free from. And that being said, we acknowledge that all of our analyses that we presented today are reflective of our own personal perspectives and the knowledge that we have. So we would love to hear your interpretation of our analysis and the things that we have uh, missed out on pointing out. You might disagree with some of the things that we said today, and we want to hear about that. You might agree, and you might be able to pick out more things that we were just completely blind to. So please, if this episode interested you and got you thinking about how your perspective helps you identify different strengths and weaknesses in this franchise as it relates to social issues, please tell us. We want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, we we really do. I don't think we can emphasize that enough. Um, we really do want to hear your thoughts. So um, you can find us on both Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. Uh, you can also message us on our website, um, nthuntpodcast.com. And yeah, just let us know your thoughts. Please do. And then please come back for next week's episode. It's going to be a little bit lighter of an episode, I would say. Back to our fun roots, if you will. We're going to do, this is going to be really fun, I think. We're going to do a deep dive into what happened to the minor character actors 
from National Treasure and National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets. This is going to be a fun exploration of IMDb, as well as, I don't know, I just get the sneaking suspicion this is going to be one of those episodes where we end up unearthing something jaw-dropping. So, until then, y'all, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our National Treasure Hunt. (laughs) Thank you.